episode 89. Properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism. This is Matthew, and in this episode I welcome Tim and Aaron as guests to discuss the idea that when understood in its proper context, the Bible is a potent source for atheism. I genuinely love this discussion, and I loved it even more during the editing process. I was initially hesitant about the topic because I was not convinced by the premise, but Aaron won me over. I loved having Aaron on because he asked me some direct and probing questions about things I'd not thought over for a very long time. And I appreciate him making me do that. This really was a lesson in being modest and open-minded. For that I thank him. Additionally, Tim has a bit of an abrasive reputation in some circles. But that's undeserved, as this discussion will reveal. I appreciated Tim's approach and his willingness to be personal at times. During this conversation, there is reference made to the discussion that I recently had on Unbelievable. At the time we recorded this, the recording was scheduled, but had not taken place. We also skirt over Jesus' methodism in this discussion. It is a topic I want to cover, and so I will invite both guests back for that topic. If that doesn't work out, I will find another way of covering the subject. As always... Please see the show notes for links to items raised and send any feedback to ReasonPress at Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable. We've got a foursome this time, which is the first time for, for a little while. So Andrew and I, your usual hosts, uh, sitting in the chairs, and we've got two guests this time, people who have never been on this show before. So this is a bit of a treat. Firstly, a name that you guys probably aren't familiar with, but a, a name which I've become familiar with over the past month or so. We're actually doing this show because of a comment that he made. So Aaron, welcome. We're talking about how properly read the Bible is the most potent force for atheism. That's a title that our listeners have seen. That's a title that you suggested. So tell me about yourself and why you think this is a title worth talking about. Sure, that's the idea. Well, I mean, January's coming up and the birthday of Isaac Asimov and Science Fiction Day and all that stuff. And the idea that sparked interest for the people, for at least uh, two or three of the people who were here, was Isaac Asimov's idea that if you read this thing properly, this Bible, it is the most powerful goad to atheism that you could probably come up with. That was the idea that sparked uh, the original interest and the and the reason for this conversation, in a way, right? That's what, that's what got us here. Okay. Um, my name is Aaron. As you said, Aaron Ricker, there's no reason why anybody should know who I am. I am a biblical scholar, and because I am not a Christian by any stretch, I am currently a lexicographer. (laughs) The humanities are not doing so hot in North America right now, and so that means that more and more religious studies jobs are getting squished. If you want to teach religious studies, if you want to teach biblical studies or something, you're going to end up in a school that's affiliated with the church or that has some kind of faith commitment or at least a cultural connection and there's no way I'm going there. So I'm what you might call alt-ac now, I guess. I'm using my Hebrew and Greek more than I ever did, but I'm, I'm working on dictionaries instead of actually teaching people about religion right now. So you are exactly right not to know who I am at all. Excellent. Well, let's hope that uh, <laughs> we change that anyway. And my second guest is somebody who will be more well-known to our listeners, certainly somebody who's been on my radar 
for some time. And I know of him. I certainly know he's popular with great many Christians, possibly more popular with some Christians than with atheists. But if, if you haven't worked out who that is, welcome on to Still Unbelievable, Tim O'Neill. I genuinely never thought that I would get you on. But I made an ill-advised comment on Twitter. Somebody tagged you. You jumped in on the conversation. Aaron got involved somehow and we ended up having this conversation. So well done for that idiotic thing that I did. Welcome to Still Unbelievable, Tim. Tell us about yourself. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Matthew. And thanks, Andrew, as well. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm Tim O'Neill. I'm not a scholar. I'm more of a hobbyist, but I'm the author of the History for Atheists blog. And History for Atheists is, is aimed at, at atheists. And it's, it's basically the premise is, look, if you're going to make arguments about history, the history of religion and the Bible, you kind of need to get your facts straight. And that, those are things that I've studied over many years. And I don't pretend that I'm presenting uh, original research or you know, my scholarship. All I'm doing is curating the research of actual scholars, people like Aaron, and getting my fellow atheists to make sure that when they are talking about this stuff, that they're actually checking their facts and not just talking about it. I'm not sure if I'm more popular with Christians than atheists, <laughs> but I know that there are many atheists who read my stuff and say, okay. And I get I get emails like this all the time. Thanks for your article. I did think that Christians burned down the Great Library of Alexandria, and now I know that's not true. <laughs> but I also have a pushback from people who, who like to cling to the, the historical myths and misinterpretations that I, I talk about and get very angry with me. And also, yes, unfortunately, in a way, Many of my audience actually are Christians who say, look, we were right about this stuff. And I have to say, yeah, but you're wrong about other stuff as well. <laughs> yes. I just don't I just don't emphasize that on my blog. So so if I do have lots of Christian fans, I may lose many of them through your, your podcast. And I look forward to, to doing that. OK, well, let's see if we can rectify the balance uh, there then. You do make a good point there. Nobody has got the absolute claim to all of the truth. And we we should be humble enough to be able to accept that. And if we make an ill-advised comment, we should say, yep, I bathed there. I should be more careful about how I said it. I should be less sloppy in my thinking when I'm going to say something publicly. Unfortunately, I have a habit of being quite sloppy at times. And, and I'm sure people who have listened to 90 odd episodes of uh, Still Unbelievable, they'll be able to find some sloppiness in there. Reasonpress at gmail.com. That's how you let me know when I've been sloppy and I'll do my best to work it out. So, Tim, on the subject of properly reading the Bible and it being the most potent force for atheism, where do you stand on that premise? Well, I'm always cautious about absolute statements. So is it the most potent force? Don't know. But I suppose the reason I was interested in this topic is a personal one. I was raised a Christian. I wasn't a terribly fanatical Christian. But you know, if you'd asked me at the age of 15 or 16 what I believed, I would have said, yeah, I believe in God. And I do believe that Jesus was God in human form. And I believe, I believe, I believe the major tenets of, of Christianity. But I then found myself one day, and there's a particular moment where it all began to change, sitting on the sidelines of a conversation between a fundamentalist Christian and an agnostic at high school. Now, neither of them were particularly sophisticated debaters on this topic. But I was interested in what he had to say because I'd never heard anyone say it before. Because she kept saying, Jesus said this. And he would say, how do you know? Mm -hmm. She would say, Jesus did that. And he would say, how do you know? And she kept saying, because it's in the Bible. And he'd say, who wrote the Bible? And she said, eyewitnesses who were there. And he would say, how do you know? 
And then you could say, look, you know, where, where did the manuscripts come from? How have they changed? And these are questions I've never heard asked before mm-hmm. at the age of, you know, 17. And uh, I, I didn't think she gave very good answers. In fact, her answers were terrible. So here I was at that point, uh, really on her side, even though I found her highly irritating and I really liked him. He was a pretty cool guy. But I didn't have the answers. And I thought, well, I'm going to go away and study. You know, as a young fellow who was already quite interested in ancient medieval history and was starting to understand how history is studied, I thought, I'm going to go away and I'm going to do the study so that if anyone challenges me the way he challenged her, I'll be able to answer those questions. It didn't quite work out that way. And I went away and did several years worth of study, and by the end of it, I was an atheist. I'm not sure if studying the Bible made me an atheist, though. I think probably doing philosophy at university was probably more responsible, which is why I'm hesitating a little bit on the premise. But it certainly may be a non-Christian, because as perhaps we'll get into, I would argue, and, I'm, and I can see Aaron is nodding vigorously here, I would argue that once you understand these texts as ancient texts, not as the Bible, because mm-hmm. there isn't such a thing as the Bible. The Bible is just a collection that we put together hundreds of years later. Once you understand that, it all kind of falls apart. And all the desperate attempts by Christian apologists to try and make keep it together just look weaker and weaker the more you understand that this stuff. So that's why I, I do accept the premise up to a point. I think if you read the Bible not as a believer, but as a critical historian, you start to see something very, very different. It's interesting that, and I think I'm probably more on your side on that, Tim, because my journey from Christianity, from very fundamentalist Bible accepting, Bible literalistic Christianity, my journey out of that to atheism wasn't reading the Bible and going, oh, I suddenly no longer disbelieve this. That the, the contents of the Bible needed to be challenged for me. And for that, it was I, the way I did that was by gaining a better understanding of science. And for me, for me, the premise is a better understanding of science makes people atheists because that was my journey. But now when I go back and read the Bible, I go, why did I ever believe it that way? Yeah, so, we share the, um, <clears throat> we share the uh, same story there to some extent, Matthew. So, you know, I did some time uh, in seminary. Uh, I can read a little Greek, uh, Aaron. I'm not a I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so uh, uh, we can't talk Hebrew. Well, you can, <laughs> but I won't be able to join. I do wonder, like you, Tim, whether the Bible is the most powerful force for uh, you know, for making atheists. I I tend to think that if there were better science education all over the world, not just the United States or Canada or Australia, or the European Union, where Christianity is strong, pick the Middle East, any of the Asian countries, places where you might have a strong Islamic traditions. I tend to think that if we had better science education all over the world, that would be the most potent force uh, for fighting religious dogma. Now, we don't. And so we can only address the, the question that is at hand, which is, is, is reading the Bible as part of the force of atheists. Maybe the answer is yes, though I tend to think that there could be a more potent force if we had a different set of commitments. Sure. But, Andrew, I, I've challenged that a little bit because I think the dichotomy between, you know, you've got religion on one side and you've got science on the other 
And if you if you understand science better, then you'll you'll end up rejecting religion. I think this is kind of a premise which has grown up, particularly in the, in the whole new atheist movement. The religion and science are diametrically opposed ways of looking at the world. And and the problem with that is that there are a great many deeply religious people who are also highly scientifically literate. My father was one of them. Right. So that's why I was careful to say I know what you're saying, but I think it's more that a better understanding of science will will help you to leave a or or to walk away from a particular form of religion, one that Mm -hmm. takes a fundamentalist reading, for example, and uses it to explain everything in the world. Whereas I don't come from a fundamentalist Christian background. I come from a a non-literalist background. And so when someone says, well, look, Genesis isn't true, therefore the Bible is crap. My father would simply say, well, who the hell says Genesis is literally true? Only idiots think that. (laughs) That was was actually why I was careful to say, or or at least I think I said, religious dogma. Um, Sure. Okay. But but now, to be fair, I don't know. It's what I intended to say. I can't even look back in my head at the moment. decide whether I use the word dogma, but but I will say this, we're probably on the same page there. If I didn't say religious dogma, it was in my head, and uh, I accept the correction. Mm. But but look, my father did believe in religious dogma. He was quite a a dogmatic believer, far more than I was when I was a boy. So so this is why I'm just a little bit cautious about science education is a better way to get people to become an atheist. I think it's probably a better way to get people to walk away from, as you say, a particular type of dogmatic religion which requires literalism. But there's a whole. I think we're going to explore this, right? That's right. There's a whole long and deep tradition within Christianity, the Catholic tradition and the Orthodox tradition in particular, that was never biblically literalist. That's a new thing. That's actually quite a new. That's quite a Protestant thing, and it's actually a very American thing. So we have to be a little bit. We have to be a little bit careful about about making it too simplistic. And the shape of it is definitely new. Yes. I mean, Asimov is not here, so maybe I could jump in. Uh, defend him a little bit because he didn't just say reading the Bible, he said properly read, right? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure if you could call him up, I don't even know if you want to because I don't know how he's doing in terms of Me Too and all this other stuff, you know, for heroes of the ancient past. But if you could call him up, I'm pretty sure that he would say, you know, properly read includes the philosophical maturity that you're talking about, Tim, right? Properly read includes openness to science that people. That, that you're talking about, Andrew, where the, it changes the way that you look at the text. And so you end up seeing it as an expression of something human. And when you do that, when you see it as an expression of something human, it can, from a generous point of view, it can, it can be nice to, to, to see, oh, look, this is what humans are like. Oh, look, this is how humans make meaning. But if you're already a Christian, it can also really start deconstructing some things for you, right? If you say, this is a human document, these are human phenomena of community development, it changes the message pretty radically. So maybe that's where he would say uh, philosophy and the science are going to help you if looking at the Bible is going to be your main tool for pushing atheism ahead. And maybe also just because, like I think all four of us here, you start out with Christianity being expected as your default. And so you have the Bible given as this thing that's supposed to be good and it's supposed to have truth and so on. If you learn to read it, not assuming that it's right and you're wrong, 
if you learn to read it as a human document, then you're coming out of that default. So that could be a way of uh, salvaging some of Asimov's promise that reading the Bible properly is the number one resource. Right, and sadly, uh, sadly, the good doctor died back in the early 90s. Uh, okay. <laughs> we, can't, we can't have him on the show. But, yeah, yeah. It's going to be hard to have him, unless, of course, the Christians are right. Yes, <laughs> that's him one day. But Aaron, I think you nailed it. There. One of the things that, that fundamentalist Christians in particular like to do is to get you to not read other stuff other than the Bible. You know, if you just read the Bible, then it becomes this sort of self-enclosed paradigm. And it means that I, I, I was often baffled when I first realised this, that, that the Bible wasn't, you know, wasn't what Christians claimed. And in my, my great confidence at the age of about, you know, 20, thought I'd confront some fundamentalist Christians with some of the things I knew, and it just bounced off them, and I was quite baffled. I was saying, well, look, here the Bible says this, here the Bible says something else. That can't be true. Here Jesus says that people in his generation are going to see the end of the world come, and he was wrong. Mm-hmm. And they, and I thought that they would be astounded. Instead, they just flipped through their Bible and found another way to, to interpret that. Yeah. And that's because we weren't reading the Bible the same way. I was reading it in a historical, critical way. You know, saying, okay, this text was written at this time. This text was written in another part of the Roman Empire at another time. You can't reconcile them. They're not talking to each other. But in, in the Christian mindset, they are. You know? Is this fair? Is, would it be fair to say that you were looking at it the way that you would responsibly look at almost any old sacred text? Ancient text. Any ancient, ancient text. Any ancient text. Any ancient text. And they weren't able to look at it, even for a minute. You know, just to put on those glasses just for a minute and say, what if it is, what if I try to read it like almost any ancient text just for a minute? When people talk about the Bible as a book, I always correct them and say it isn't a book. It's a a library. It's a collection of texts. But they see it as a book. They see it as one single single thing, which it didn't become until, say, sometime, and really until sometime in around about the late third, early fourth century. Not even finished for some people, right? You have, exactly. you have the Mormon Bible adding and you have, yeah. you know. What you guys have just done, though, is you very eloquently described my own upbringing. I was brought up in a missionary environment in Zambia in the 70s and 80s. And it very much was so. What the Bible says is true. Thou shalt not question that. Hmm. And, and and here it is. And there were you, one of you mentioned deconstruction earlier. And my Deconstruction had multiple stepping stones through that before I eventually fell off the the wagon, so to speak. But one of them was this realization that this literal young earth Old Testament simply can't exist. So so now what do I do with it? And what that precipitated was a collapsing of the narratives of key moments in the Old Testament that I understood the creation of the Garden of Eden, Eden being the obvious one, but it's not just that. You've got the Tower of Babel, you've got the global flood, you've got the escape from Egypt, and you've got all these key moments that start falling away. And maybe that's me falling into this premise of learning to read the Bible more properly and going, ah, now what do I do? What did you do? <laughs> I became an atheist. <laughs> well, I know, but I mean, what, what did you do with, let's say, the story of the flood or something or the story of the genocides in Canaan? What did you start to do with them? Um, well, I start to understand that they weren't true as written, mm-hmm. which then the, the next question then becomes, Good well, stuff. which bits 
are true? Which are the bits that are safe? Uh, and it got to the point where I couldn't answer that question. There's so little extra biblical detail that some of these really old stories like Joshua and the city of Ai and, and things like that, there's so little modern archaeological detail surrounding events like that, that it's impossible almost to pull any truth out of that story at all. So I came to the conclusion that if I can't trust if I know that the, the critical bits are false and I can't trust any of the others, then there is there any safety whatsoever in accepting any of the story as true? And mm-hmm. I effectively went, no. And I think that was the problem for me. And ditto, if, ditto over here. The question is, you know, do I have a good reason to believe any of it? And eventually, for a lot of us, we say, no, I don't have a good reason to believe basically any of it. Yeah, that, yes. And I, there, think there was, were, I think the word true here is actually quite important, and I'm going to be, you know, come at it again from a historical angle. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you say, I, I came to the conclusion, Matthew, that I, that, that I couldn't believe that any of it was true, mm-hmm. I think what you're talking about there is sort of epistemological truth. So it's, it's yeah. well, actually, it's so much of it has now been revealed to me to not probably not actually be real. Mm-hmm. That do I, what foundation do I have to believe that any of the of the conclusions, the theological conclusions that are based on it, yeah. are actually real, are, are actually factual, and that's why you ended up an atheist. Yeah. One of the things I do find, though, is that there is a, a genuine connection between people who come from a fundamentalist, literalist background, go through your journey, and end up in a position of hyper-scepticism where they, they also say none of this stuff happened at all. So I, I spent a lot of time on my on my website debunking Jesus mythicism, the yeah. idea that there was no historical Jesus at all. And and this is the argument that's often used. Well, you know, he didn't walk on water and he didn't if heal raise people from the dead. So how do we know anything, any of this stuff is true? How do we know he even existed? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like a valid argument, but actually from a historical point of view, it doesn't work like that. So when we talk about it not being true, theologically true, sure. Mm-hmm. Does that mean necessarily that nothing in the Bible actually happened? That's another question. That would be hard. And, 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 I would, and I would say that even though we can't know that there was a historical Jesus, that's actually the best conclusion. Now, whether or not he walked on water and rose from the dead and all that stuff, they're, they're separate questions and yeah. you know, different answers yeah. to those. And, uh, right. I was purposely staying with the Old Testament for, for my bits. Yeah, the the Gospels is more problematic, and the way I feel about the Gospels and certainly Jesus is a little bit more nuanced than what I've been describing. If we go back to my city of AI example, the whole Joshua walking around the walls and blowing trumpets and the walls falling down, yeah, we can pretty much confidently rule that part of the narrative out. Was there once a city there that was destroyed in a battle? Well, maybe. But if you take the miraculous bit out, then a city that transitioned into a, a regional powerhouse and then got destroyed again in the battle, well, that happened throughout history. Why does sure. it matter? It's of right. so little importance, it's irrelevant right. to the to the story. Right. right. Well, it seems that you've sure. found a new way to read it. You found a new way to read that story. It's a theological sort of embroidery on a kind of thing that happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think Asimov would say you're learning to read that right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I, I'm going to end this episode agreeing with the premise. I, I think that's the road I'm on already. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm still not there. Um, in fact, I'm not, I'm not sure that we're not the, long, the wrong way around on it. In order to make room for religion uh, in my own life, uh, by the way, Tim, I think you're right that a lot of fundamental evangelicals who walk away have a, a, an almost knee-jerk reaction to the historicity of Jesus and all of that sort of thing. And I, I will tell you <laughs> that, uh, that I was a uh, conservative, but not an evangelical, though I was definitely a fundamentalist. So the tradition that uh, that I grew up in didn't accept modern day miracles, uh, as a for instance. So if you're familiar with that kind of thinking. Uh, but... Uh, my question now, and where I am based on my understanding of the way the world works, is for me to accept that there is a God. So let's get past the word religion and just talk about God for a moment, or any God. Right? I have to say that for me, a thing that cannot be proven to exist cannot itself be a cause. And with that in mind, then, without a demonstration that a God exists, you'll have a tough road to hoe to get me to accept any religious tenets based on the conclusion that that God does exist. Sure, but you're in, I mean, you're in pure philosophical, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what you just said, but you're in pure philosophical territory there. Oh, so, I, I don't think I am, uh, and, yeah. and here's why. Yeah. Um, show me your God. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making a philosophical statement. I'm making a, I'm making a concrete uh, statement about evaluation of properties of a thing that exists. Yeah. If so, you can show me God, you don't think that sounds like philosophy. <laughs> What's that? You don't think that sounds philosophical? <laughs> uh, that's not what I said. I didn't say, say that it didn't sound philosophical. What I said was, okay. show me your God. I don't think that sounds philosophical at all. It doesn't sound oh. any more philosophical than Should show me your red corvette. Yeah, I think my point, and I think Aaron's making the same point. It, it, what I'm saying when you're saying you're in pure philosophical territory there is is you're not actually using another premise. For example, you're not drawing on, for example, stuff in the Bible. You're making an argument that's based on, well, if, then. That, that's philosophy. I think, and, and you know, nothing wrong with that. I, again, I came to my atheism largely through thinking things through that way. But I think, back to our point about the, the Bible, one of the ways I, I looked at the Bible uh, once I started to think that way was, well, these texts, are they actually telling me about a being that existed or are they? do they seem to be folklore of a kind that I find in all sorts of other religions? And the answer was they look a hell of a lot like folklore. You know, you, the, the thing about gods is that they bear an uncanny resemblance to the people who believe in them. This is why Vikings had gods who liked, you know, getting drunk and fighting and having sex because that's what Vikings did. And, and the God of the Old Testament is very much a Near Eastern Iron Age potentate who demands obedience and offerings and in return gives protection. It's not too difficult to look at that and think this does seem to be a story that people are telling themselves about themselves. And, and one of the ways that I came to that conclusion once I came back to the Bible after years of studying other religions is this is just folk, folklore. I'm not saying it's, it's, it doesn't have profundity. I'm not saying it doesn't have wisdom, but it is effectively folklore. It's, it's traditional folklore, which which has evolved. And this is why we the God that, say, um, Matthew, when you're talking to to our mutual friend Justin Brealy, his God is is a very Justin Brealy shaped God. 
know, he he believes in a in a, a kindly English gentleman who who is who's you know quite quite uh, empathetic and wise. He believes in the Justin Brealey shaped God. Most people do. They believe in a God that, that is effectively reflections of themselves. But I think you can get to that by looking at the Bible, by realising that that's what you're seeing. Well, it could, it could at least be a tool. It sounds like you're saying that realising that when you look at the Bible and you look at the different gods, by the way, there's not just one God in the Bible. Yeah, that's right. There's so many divine beings in the Bible. Yeah. But when you look at it and you think, oh, that's exactly what you would expect from someone writing in this time and place, Sorry. that that can mean something to you if you've got if your ears are open for it when you notice oh man that looks exactly like what you would expect and then if you talk to this nice english gentleman about his god and turns out to be a nice english gentleman god you think that's what you would expect that realization in itself for a thinking person should have some weight to notice oh that's exactly the god you would expect them to make up oh man what have i been reading here yes <laughs> exactly hmm. So there's a very important question then in, in all of this is, how do we know if we're reading the Bible properly and how do we differentiate between a bastardized reading and a proper reading? Because one of the questions that plagued me after I got to this point of challenging the, the narratives in the Old Testament was now that I've rejected those as literally true stories mm. and I've started poking at other parts of the Christian narrative, where do I stop? And somebody else who had never been a Christian believer asked me that very question and I had no answer. Where do I stop reinterpreting these passages as mostly fictionalized with elements of historical reality that I can't really get to? Where do I stop and where do I get to an, a passage that might actually be more true than not? How do I know the difference? Okay, I've got some thoughts on that, but I know Aaron will, so I'll let, let you answer that. Well, first of all, I'd want to know why it would matter. Just because, like like we said earlier, the fact that there definitely does seem to have been an executed teacher by this name, Jesus, it doesn't mean that the part that matters to all the Christians is true. Can you tell me why it would matter to you which parts maybe really did happen? Because at that point in my life, I was struggling with the Christianity that I had because I knew that the fundamentalist, literalist, young earth Christianity that I was familiar with had to go. And I had to replace it with something or nothing. Uh, and so the reason why it was important was I needed to find a path to either a Christianity that I was prepared to believe or Christianity is gone completely and there is nothing left. Yeah. So that's why it was important. I see. So you were trying to imagine a new Christianity, but it was important to you that some things be true in there? Yes, because at that point I hadn't let go of the belief in God. Okay. So I still believed in God. And more importantly, I still deeply to the root of my soul wanted to believe in God. So mm. I needed to find a, a hold, something that I could hold on to that I could trust was true because that would be my ticket to believing in God again. I promise not being difficult. No, what, no, 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 it's good. These are good what, questions, honestly. Why does that, why would that require for you at that time? Yeah. Why would that require for you at that time that there be some, that the Bible gets some things right? Why couldn't it get almost everything wrong except for this subtle transcendent message that you just sort of so 
Justin like to do? Like, what? Why did you want to have? Why did you want it to be right about something? Do you think? Because I was still a feature of my indoctrinated Christianity. Okay. So for me, Christianity had to be true, and I needed to find out what I'd misunderstood. And becoming atheist at that point in time for me, becoming atheist meant I'll become a wretched, immoral bastard <laughs> who would have no control over his compunctions. Uh. You know, that was that was the belief that I had. So at all costs, I had to stop becoming atheist because I'd become a wicked, terrible person. Can, can I say something? Can I say something real quick? Yeah, please do. I think that you're, you're pointing to something super important there when you talk about what you thought you were choosing between. Right. Just because, like, I really, one reason why I really appreciate what Tim does is that some atheists really do become insufferable bastards, <laughs> right? Because they, because we feel, and we're mo- a whole bunch of white guys, mostly, statistically speaking, and they know something that their neighbor doesn't, and they can become absolute turds. And that's one reason why I love what Tim is doing, because it's important to have your facts right and to have an open heart and open head when you come to this, because people like you will think, well, I can't be an atheist because they're all shits. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what fundamentalism does to you. you know? it, right. I was taught as a five-year-old child that there would be atheists in the world that I would meet as an adult, and that is what they would be like. So from a very, very young child, I was taught and indoctrinated into complete fear and distrust of people who did not believe in Christianity. And that was the baggage that I dragged into that that process. It's something that Isaac Asimov really needed to factor in, is that a potent force for atheism is meeting atheists, who are obviously decent people and they're doing their best just like you, right? Like like the person that Tim met and he said he liked him. I think yeah. I, I think it's important that he liked him, that he was intrigued. I think it's important that he could then see himself maybe going down a philosophy road and changing his mind. Because for a lot of Christians, they just can't see a world where they could maybe be an atheist. They might even lose their job. They might lose their families. They can't see that world. And I think that's much more important than being smart or, you know, knowing particular facts, actually, is to be lucky enough to have it presented to you as something that's feasibly doable, that's actually a real option for you to do. An important question about Christianity and about uh, about the three big monotheistic religions, and that is, where do atheists derive their value? Right, because one of the one of the big problems, at least Christians in the states, I'm pretty sure I've, Matthew and I've had guests from the UK that would ask the same kind of question. Where do we get our values? If if we don't have uh, now, it, as it turns out, I think we do have some pretty objective values as atheists, but I get to them very differently. But one of the common religious questions is, without a set of objective values, what do you believe, and and why does it matter? Can't can't the other guy just say, well, I don't believe like you do? And then they seem to be sort of saying, there's we we have this world of anarchy at the end. If if you're an atheist and you don't have some sort of objective source for your values, then everything is the same, and we just have this world of uh, of anarchy uh, at the end. And meeting atheists that have a strong sense of value. However, they derive it and can articulate it in some meaningful way. And having a commitment to those values that seems to be as strong as as people with some religious background 
uh, are committed to their values. That is an important step in accepting the atheists around you. Yeah, I think I think well, you know, I've had the situation several times over the years where where I've been confronted by Christians who have asked me that question or versions of it. And it's interesting to see the reaction when I respond. I remember once I was talking to, weird, I was actually in a nightclub and I was talking to this girl because I kind of fancied her this a few years ago. Turns out she was not just a a Christian, not just a Catholic, but a member of Opus Dei. And if anyone knows anything about Opus Dei, Catholic Church, they're they're regarded as radical weirdos by Catholics. (laughs) Anyway. So what started out as me trying to chat up a rather attractive girl in a black hot cocktail dress turned into a philosophical conversation in a nightclub. But she 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 asked me, well, where do you get your you know, where do you get your ethics from uh, if you don't believe in God? You know, she was basically saying you have no moral basis. And I said to her, okay, well you think about this. If you're driving along the road in your car, you're in a hurry, you really want to get somewhere fast. It's important that you get somewhere quickly. You know, in in this scenario. And there's a little old lady crossing the road and you will get there faster if you run her down in your car. Why don't you run her down? And she said, well, that would be terrible. Why is it terrible? Well, because she's a human being like me and you know, empathy and so on. I said, fine. Now, you just answered the question without mentioning God once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She And she stopped. And she said, also because it's wrong, because God said so. And I said, you <laughs> And you can see the realisation. She just, it, it suddenly dawned on her that actually you can have a basis for morality. And then she said, but that's subjective. I said, why is a subjective or situational ethics, why is that less powerful for holding us together as a society than saying there's a man in the sky who will punish you? And actually, if the only reason you're not running the little old lady down is because you're scared of being punished by the man in the sky, I know that's that's a, a silly way of putting it, but if that's effectively what's going on, then does that make you moral or, or me more moral? I think it makes me more moral. Yeah, I completely to put a tag on that that has to do with the Bible, too, if you if people really do want to have something that's not subjective, they're going to have to come up with something that doesn't contradict itself. <laughs> they're going to have to come up with something that doesn't comply with moral standards that are clearly local to that time and place and horrible, you know, about slavery and genocide and so on. So and the you've got to solve your repro's dilemma. The, the idea that subjectivity is on us as opposed to them who are picking and choosing and having to make certain passages more important than others is a weird argument to me. It's cl- You're still clearly having to decide something, even if you think that your morality came from some somebody up above you that you can't see. So, so there's vastly more in the Bible about about impurity due to to various you know, touching corpses and you know and nocturnal emissions and, and menstruation. Vastly more than there is anything about homosexuality or anything that could be construed as being about homosexuality. But if you talk to a modern Christian, you'd think that the Bible is full of stuff condemning homosexuality. Yeah. And it is. You know, Jesus had, had precisely zero to say in the reported teachings uh, have anything to do with homosexuality. You, you, there are churches that are obsessed with this stuff. So Aaron is absolutely right. Well, come on now. You can hang your hat on Romans 1.17. Yeah, that's right. Did Jesus write that? You read your Bible properly, like Isaac Asimov said. Who wrote Romans? Yeah. And the other passage that I will always use is, is the one in, in Leviticus. Right. But whenever they, they quote Leviticus at me about homosexuality, I always say, well, do you believe the whole of, of that passage? Yes. Okay, so we're, we're meant to stone gays, are we? Oh, no. 
So what, you only believe the first bit about how it's bad. You don't believe the second bit, which is in the same passage, about how we're meant to drag them into a public square and throw rocks at them until they die. You know, so they're picking and choosing if it's been that. Oh, but, sorry. I was just, and you move five chapters further on, and you've got condoning of slavery. Do you believe? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Leviticus twenty-five. I mean, cherry, uh, cherry. This, this is yeah. why it's hard to have a straight face when they talk about you can't be subjective and you can't pick and choose and make moral decisions on your own. Well, of course you can. You have to. Yeah. You have to. And everyone does. Everyone does. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I think that talking about the Bible in a particular way, very clearly not like a total ass or and with the very clearly and pointing out these things i think that might be kind of one way to read the bible properly with people that could that could help enlighten what's going on with some faulty reasoning there yeah but uh, matthew your point before about how you were trying to find a way in which you picked your way through your newer understanding of the bible mm -hmm. but, but maintained some kind of faith and uh, lots of people achieve that uh, one of my favourite biblical scholars, the New Testament scholars, uh, is Dale C. Allison. And he and I agree on pretty much everything to do with Jesus as an apocalyptic preacher, a man of his time with a message that was about what was going on in first century Palestine at that point. But he's still a Christian. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it, you can find ways, but it, it just gets harder and harder. And this is why... That, that more fundamentalist, that more, you know, that more sort of rigidly orthodox or, or even biblically literalist form of Christianity is so popular because it, it, it's an absolute. And, and OK, you have to play some some pretty sophisticated mental gymnastical games to, to maintain it. But if you can maintain it, it's an all or nothing way of looking at the world. How do I how do I know anything? I just turn to the Bible. It gets much more difficult when you're starting to have to pick and choose and say, well, okay, that bit's not true, but this bit, you know, this is true. That bit doesn't have philosophical or theological application to my life, but this bit does. It gets much, much harder, which is why fundamentalism is says, well, either you believe, I've heard preachers say this, either you believe it all or you can't believe any of it at all. And this is why people, when they quite often move away from fundamentalist and, and literalist Christianity, slide to the other extreme. And this is why I end up arguing with a whole lot of people, you know, Jesus mythicists, who have gone, gone to the other, to the silly extreme and and actually behave very much like fundamentalist Christians, right down to the point where they've got holy books and preachers and like, you know, Richard Carrier says, and they're sitting there opening up the, the Richard Carrier's book on the historicity of Jesus and quoting him chapter and verse. And, and like they, they might as well be in a pulpit. It is a difficult thing. I don't want to land on Jesus' mysticism just yet. No, it's, sorry. It's, it's, it's fine. No, it's fine. It's okay to touch it. But maybe yeah. as a teaser, maybe, Tim, we could have you back and we can do a whole episode on Jesus' mysticism if you're... But okay, may, maybe we can. Uh, I've certainly been accused of the, being the kind of atheist that that you have just been you just described. Uh, but I will say it now: I do not count myself as a Jesus mythicist, but I do skate quite close to that area. So it gets quite mucky. Christian's opinion of me gets quite mucky when it talks about that. But let's save that for um, another time. Here on Still Unbelievable, certainly when Andrew and I do our solo shows, or whether we have some of our more lay guests on. We get very, very spiky towards Christianity. I make no bones about that. I don't pretend that this is a a, a nice, safe, Christian friendly podcast. For a lot of the time we're not. And 
I'm okay with that, and I don't mind making a few Christian enemies. I'm pretty sure that most of my listeners here, or our listeners here on Seven Believable, are either people who are atheists and enjoy hearing this dialogue, or people who are on their way out and they need something to just help them to formulate these kinds of things. And the kind of emails I get that appreciate our content are those kinds of people. So I'm quite happy. I have never been spiky to a Christian guest. Oh, you to a Christian <laughs> guest, yes. <laughs> to a Christian guest, no, but we're responding no, to Christianity I, I, as an entity. Um, but where was I going? But to flesh out my story a little bit more and to possibly to lead on to uh, uh, the point you're making there, Tim. My final lecture, and I don't know if either of you two guys know the name David Jenkins from around about the early 90s, late 80s, I think it was, he was the guy who hit major headlines here in the UK, he was the Bishop of Durham at the time, and he made the case that the resurrection of Jesus never happened, and that the resurrection was a metaphysical resurrection, in that he, Jesus is living on in the memories and in the stories was what Jesus' resurrection really was, and the UK press went absolutely ballistic, and I was around I was a late teenager, so maybe 19 years old kind of age when when that happened. And I was devastated by that, absolutely devastated that somebody that a bishop in the UK could say something like that and could believe that. And then worse still, I went to home group with the pastor of the church. It was a, a Methodist church here in the UK. So it wasn't a pastor, it was a minister, whatever the word doesn't matter. He affirmed that. And this was somebody who I looked up to, somebody who I thought was a really spiritual man. And he affirmed that as true. And so well, I had a double hit. That it had a spiritual vibe to it or it was purely a human phenomenon? I oh, I, I don't know how to answer that, uh, okay. to, to be uh, fair, Aaron. Okay. He, he affirmed that Jesus' resurrection was not physical. Not that there was no physical resurrection, that it was all in the memories and the stories uh, of, yeah. of the people. Yeah. And so I got double devastated that mm. week and it was a terrible, terrible time for me. So now we roll forward to when I've now questioned my Christianity and I've rejected these key stories from the Old Testament that I've mentioned. Mm. And so the point that I reached was that question. Can I live with myself with that Christianity? Mm. And... I basically said to myself, no, I can't. And I think what did it for me was if these stories in the Old Testament I can't trust, and especially the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, if Adam and Eve weren't created and didn't fall, and humans are just evolved apes who evolved from something pre predisposed, something that pre that came before, then this whole concept of a point of sin, a moment of creation, God breathing life into humans, that point in time just doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. It can't have happened. And if that is fiction, then the point of Jesus' death is irrelevant because there's no there's no point of salvation because there's nothing to be saved from. And that was where I reached. So I got to the point where the David Jenkins Jesus was irrelevant Okay. Because he didn't die for anything. He didn't die to save my sin because there was no sin consequences to save me from because the Garden of Eden narrative is false. So that was the route that I took. So I avoided okay. the David Jenkins dilemma because I'd rejected the whole concept of original sin. 
And so, so when by that point I'm going, well, there's literally nothing worth worth getting excited about. And so that was my out. Because I think there there were other there are other people around who, who who kind of were saying the same thing, or still are, uh, who say the same kind of thing as, as Jenkins. In fact, there are like there are literally millions of Christians who believe that kind of Christianity. Yeah. John Shelby Spong was the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, uh, an American Episcopalian bishop. Uh, wrote a book in the 90s called Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism, where he was arguing along very similar lines and talking about the resurrection event and talking about and, and mocking the idea of taking Bible stories literally. I mean, did Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, did he fly off into the air? Where did he go? Yeah. Um, you know, he rose physically from the dead, so is he still out there somewhere? So obviously it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think, Matthew and, and, and Andrew, you probably need to get a, Spong or, or Jenkins style person on the show and maybe discuss how it makes sense to them because I'm like you I kind of got to that point and thought well okay this doesn't make sense and so I'm, I now no longer believe it and I, I have spoken to people who believe in that kind of Christianity and I don't quite get it um, either. But, but that's again because I'm always looking at this stuff from a historical point of view mm-hmm. and and so I went through a very similar process i suppose matthew but what happened was once i worked out that jesus was probably a jewish preacher an apocalyptic preacher i then wanted to try and work out how how much of the story was true and i went through years of trying to come up with reconstructions of well this bit's probably true but maybe not this bit i've kind of given up on that these days these days i sort of say look there are about three or four things i think we can say as historians are probably true. One, he existed. Two, he probably came from Nazareth. Three, he had a brother called James. Four, he preached about the coming end of the world. And five, he was crucified by the Romans. Other than that, I don't think we can say much about the guy. Then there's a big, big potential category of things that might have been true. He might have gone to Capernaum and preached a particular parable, maybe, but we can't yeah. tell. He might but have been at a wedding. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. that has been my problem with the Jesus story. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and is that whoever Jesus was, uh, and I and like you, I think he probably existed, but whoever he was, he is as much legend today, uh, in fact, more legend today yeah. than he was. That, well, as time rolls on, he's more and more legend every day. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know that there's an easy way to solve that problem. We, we don't have recordings of Jesus. We don't have videos of Jesus. In fact, um, Sai Baba is, is far better attested yeah. uh, today than the Jesus that we have. Yeah. And uh, in part, it was that legendary quality that helped me walk away. Mm. Because how do you know? Uh, it, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't make sense as a sermon, right? No, no one stood on a mountain and said that thing in that way as a sermon. That's not new with me. So, you know, what is it? that we have about Jesus that gives us such commitment as a society, not individually, obviously, as a society, what is it that we have that gives us such commitment to that historical character? Interested in you guys' thoughts there. Mm-hmm. Well, can I connect it to reading the Bible again? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that part of the reason that we are where we are is because, have you, do you know Northrop Fry around the world, or is he just... Yeah, yeah, no. Just for Canadians. This is something I first, I, I, I've seen it in a few scholars, but I first saw it in an English literature guy, Northrop Fry. He said, basically, the Jesus of the Bible 
has been very successfully sealed off from the kind of questions that that you might be asking right now like did, did he really have 12 disciples or did he actually visit some this part of Canaan or whatever? He's been sealed off in a literary way. And part of the way that he's been sealed off is that he's always doing things that are predicted. He's always doing things that fulfill, right? He's always doing things that make him the Messiah that some audience is going to expect and need and want. And I think one way that reading the Bible properly in Asimov sense can help is to notice that this Jesus that's in this Bible is sealed off from the kind of questions that we would ask, like, how tall was he or did he have bad breath, by these expectations of he's always meeting some criterion for being the Messiah. Everything he does, everything he says is fulfilling something or proving somehow to some audience that they meet an expectation, some kind of messianic expectation. And I think when you notice, I think even just noticing that, noticing that nothing in this text tells me anything except for a kind of theological propaganda, I think even just noticing that is it, it means something to a thinking person. Yeah, and and I think I think the the, the thing about reading ancient texts is you have to read them in the context of of when and how and why they were written. And unfortunately, when most people read the Bible, they they don't. And so, really, once you understand that the Gospels are not document, they're not newspaper reports, and were never meant to be. They're not documentary history. And this is the way both Christians and many atheists read them. Atheists read them and go, well, if we read this as a documentary history, it can't make sense. Look, he's riding on two donkeys at once. That's silly. Sure, of course it's silly, because it's not meant to be read that way. So, I mean, the, the, these are books of that, that are, are not saying Jesus did this. They're saying Jesus is this, and this is why a lot of the the miracles and a lot of the a lot of the particularly the infancy gospels, the the Christmas story stuff, it, it doesn't make any sense as as history, uh, despite what Christians will try and tell you, it doesn't. Uh, and we could do a whole show on that, but it does make sense as theology because what it's saying is, look at who he is, look at who he was, and look at who he is. And once you start to read the Bible, read the text of the Bible, you've got to stop talking about it as a singular book. Once you start reading them in context and understand them as genre, so understand what the Gospels are as a genre and understand that they're not newspaper reports, they're not documentary history, then it starts to make a certain kind of sense. Doesn't mean well, You start to understand it. doesn't mean that you then, you then necessarily believe it. Obviously, I don't. And one of the things that, that I suppose uh, worked for me and this was even before I started to look into this stuff. For one of the complicated reasons, you know, I was sent to a, a Christian youth camp and there was one guy who spoke at this camp and I, I actually liked what he said. And he was talking about how he had gone uh, gone every, gone back from last time he'd been to this camp and read a chapter of, of the New Testament every night before he went to sleep. I thought, I'll do that. So I actually did something that many Christians don't do. I read the whole New Testament. And I read it front to back. And immediately I began to notice stuff that I'd never noticed before because most Christians don't do that. Most Christians go to church and a preacher or a priest or someone will stand up and they'll read a bit of the New Testament and then they'll expound on it. And most Christians are just getting snippets. I started noticing stuff in the New Testament that I'd never heard before. I read stories I'd never even heard before. I'd read sayings of Jesus and I thought, one, I've never heard that, and two, what the hell is he talking about? So it, it, it started to open my eyes. 
a bit about uh, a few things that I hadn't actually noticed before. And one of them also is that it tells the, the New Testament, the Gospels tell the same story in different ways. And I began to notice that. I began to notice that, that um, one Gospel will tell the story quite simply. Another Gospel will be a much more elaborate version. And that's writ large in the resurrection narratives, where you go from young man next to an empty tomb to an earthquake and guards falling asleep and, and you know, all sorts of drama. It's like, well, they both can't be true. Then when you realise that the Matthew account, the one with the earthquake, was based on the Mark account, the one with the young man next to an empty tomb, you, you have to realise that the author of Matthew is embroidering, he's adding, and he's doing it deliberately. He knows that he's writing a slightly different story to the one he's found in his source. So what's going on? Is he lying? A lot of atheists would say, oh, he's a liar. No, he's not. He's trying to, he's trying to get across a, a truth. But you've got to get that, understand that he's not writing documentary history. And this gets back to the Bible read properly. Once you start to see all that stuff, you start to have a better understanding of why they are writing in this way, what that means, what the context was, who their audiences were, when they were writing. This is, again, his historical critical reading as opposed to theological reading. Can I check on the clarification of what is meant by properly because this is probably going to come up in the mind of uh, of my listeners yeah. i'm going to assume that by properly you don't mean fully knowing what the motives and intentions are of the people that wrote it what you yeah. mean by properly is that it is not intended to be literal as you've just said but it is a nuanced random varying collection of stories possibly even evolved stories rather than written in one setting and this mush and this mixture comes up with something that should never be literal and understanding that is what's meant by properly even if we don't know what the original motive was i might push back a little bit on the literal i i don't think it's true that just because christians today favor non-literal readings i think that's more about the failure of literal readings than about what the Bible, what Bible stories are are all about, you know, sort of in themselves or something like that. I yeah. think that an awful lot of people do take them literally, and I think that if we if we if we're trying to imagine what authors wanted, it's not always the best idea. But if we do imagine what they're wanting, I think sometimes they did want to say this is literally true. So yeah, I, yeah. yeah I don't want to overstate the point. I'm not saying the gospel writers were writing you know, purely sort of theological, allegorical work. But what I am saying is that it's multi-layered and to simply read it on one layer is always a mistake. And this is something that, that actually early early Christian writers recognised very, very early on. I mean, originally, there, there were like four layers of exegesis and and the literal was the, was the only one and, and probably one of the least important. But, but Matthew, back to, to your question, what, what do I mean by properly? I mean by reading them critically rather than reading them for, for, you know, to, for theological um, uh, substantiation, which is the way that, that most Christians read it. But if you're, if you're reading them as ancient text, you read them the way you read any ancient text. I don't sit and read Tacitus and just go, well, Tacitus said this happened. That must have been how it worked. What I'm doing is thinking, well, okay, well, who was Tacitus writing for? When was he writing? What was the context? What was his audience? What was his purpose? What could he say? What couldn't he say? So when Tacitus is criticising the Julio-Claudian dynasty, is that because they, that, that he's, he's been highly objective there or is it because he was sponsored by and friends with the next dynasty, the Flavian dynasty, who had problems with the predecessors 
who they had usurped the empire from. So this is about reading things in context, understanding authorial intention, uh, and also understanding genre, because people writing history in that period weren't sitting and writing, you know, post-Rankian modern objectivist history. They were writing polemic. They they had an objective, and the same with the gospel writers. So you've got to understand the objective and the context, and, and that way you're going to have a better understanding of what the text means. And yeah, no you're going to have to forgive me. Um, every bit of that sounded like a sermon I could hear on Sunday morning in, in any in any Christian pulpit uh, around the world. Because yeah, I don't think they're talking from the same perspective as me. Well, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, right, right. They're not. But every bit of that was well. If you only understood the context, and if you only understood their original intent, and if you know, if I think if, if you was one snip- get into their minds. Um, yeah. There's yeah. one snippet I think that you might not hear is that to read it the way you would any other ancient text. Yes. I'm oh, yes. not sure. They might. Some might. In the United Church of Canada, they might. Yeah. But in the church down the road, they they would not. Yeah. Uh, because if you if you read it the way you would any other ancient text, then you don't. I, I may have missed that if he said that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. That's, that's, that's actually the key you're, point. You're, you're, you're not assuming that there's something yeah. good to be recovered. You're not assuming there's a treasure under the dross. You're not assuming yeah. that you're when there's a problem, you're wrong. You know what I mean? When you read it as if it were any other ancient text, that might be key for me for properly reading. Yeah, I think that's, that's a very important point. Yeah. Quick question, and that I wanted to get onto is, I love what you said, Tim. I am absolutely on board with that and i'm glad that you and aaron are, are on board with that I, w- I wish i could say it as um enthusiastically and succinctly as you because i have a way of hashing my content in a way that makes me unattractive to to christians and maybe that's that's my problem so th- which brings me straight to my question is how do we get do you guys have a suggestion on how we get that kind of thinking over to those who do take the bible absolutely true how do we reach them? How do we get them to think about it? There's a little bit of quiet, so I'll go first. I think he, he said read in context, right? And Andrew jumped in and said, well, of course, you know, almost any preacher is super excited to try this. I think that is a good foothold, actually. If you tell people, you don't really know what's happening here unless you read it in context, they will maybe start nodding with you, right? Because maybe they were about to tell you the same thing. <laughs> you say, you don't really understand what's happening here until you read it in context. And at that point, you can maybe start laying in what would count as context for almost any other ancient text, right? So, for example, if you read a gospel, if, you, if you've only read one ancient hagiography, then you kind of haven't read any because you don't know what you're looking at. Right. If you only read one creation account like like you did or only one flood account, you don't know what you're looking at. And so part of reading properly would be reading the kind of things that those people were used to at the time. Reading the Bible properly would include reading and knowing about the kind of expectations that people had for books like this. And well, not for books like this, usually for oral performances like this that came down to us as books. Right. And so then when you say. Yeah, let's understand the context. Good, good. So everyone's agreeing. We're, we're going to understand the context. And then you say, well, how many apocalypses have you read? Have you read the Apocalypse of James, the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, the Apocalypse of Seth, the Apocalypse of... And if they haven't read any of those, then it's a chance to say, well, when you read the Apocalypse of John, 
you're going to miss out on some very important things of what's happening if you don't know what people expected from an apocalypse. If you read Revelation and you don't know what people expected from an apocalypse, you're going to be confused and you might develop a beautiful special relationship to the book, but you're going to be out in outer space somewhere when it comes to the reality of what an apocalypse was. It would be like uh, watching one movie only in your life, one of the James Bond movies, right? You could have such a meaningful relationship with that one James Bond movie, but your ideas of what's going on will be just out in outer space when it comes to what movies are and what James Bond movies do. You're not going to know why so many things happen. You're going to be confused by so many elements and characters, and it could be really meaningful to you and good for you, but if you want to talk about what it means in its context, you need to know about the history of movies, you need to know about the history of James Bond books and, and films, and you need to have seen a few other movies to really know what you're seeing. And I think that might be one way, at least it worked for me as a young person, to get people interested in reading it as if it were just another ancient text, to read it as an ancient text, as opposed to something special with a beautiful background of other ancient texts, right? Yeah. The, except, the exceptionalism where you have these beautiful ancient texts and then you have the Bible, which is pretty much the only thing you pay attention to. And sometimes you refer to other things as context alone, merely context, if I can say it like that. Yeah, yeah and I, I absolutely agree with what Aaron just said. I, look, I gave up years ago trying to deconvert Christians. I, I went through a phase in my early 20s maybe, I often refer to it as my obnoxious atheist phase. I grew out of it. Some people don't, unfortunately, and they make a career out of it. But anyway, I, I, I don't do it anymore. But if anyone does sort of try and get in my face and say Christianity is true, then I can usually usually counter by saying a version of what Aaron's just said. The, the Probably the real turning point for me when it came to, to moving away from Christianity was one book, which was uh, Geza Vermes, uh, who was the um, late, Emeritus Professor of, of Jewish Studies at Oxford, and he wrote a, a brilliant book back in the early 1970s called Jesus the Jew. It wasn't a debunking of Christianity. In fact, it was a very scholarly, actually quite quite scholarly uh, work of of contextualization, where he he would take a bit from the from the Gospels, and then he'll he'll take some bits from the Talmud and from from various Jewish apocalyptic works and various other bits and pieces, and sort of say, here's the context. So it wasn't unique. He was just another Jewish preacher of this kind. He, he's Jesus doing a miracle. He's Hanana Bendoza doing a similar miracle. He's Anias doing a similar miracle. This stuff was happening. This stuff was in the air at the time. Very, very quiet, simple, quite short, but extremely dense work, which actually revolutionised historical Jesus studies at the time, but also changed my life because I got to the end of it and thought, well, hang on. I didn't realise there was any of that context before. It's exactly mm. what Aaron was talking about. And then I went on the on the journey to actually understand that context further. Awesome. Link in the show notes, so uh, readers, listeners rather, there'll be a link in the show notes uh, to that book that Tim just mentioned. It could be useful for your conversation coming up with this person. That's just, awesome. the, the, this person who wrote Uninvented? Yes. Yeah. Just that kind of thinking could be maybe useful with, for that conversation, just because so many of the things that you sent along from the book, the ideas, were exceptionalist ideas. They were ideas that don't seem to understand that similar things were going on at the same time. They were ideas that apply 
uh, one standard of reading to the Bible and another standard of reading to everything else. So taking context as seriously as they say they take it could maybe be something useful in talking to someone like your um, like this uh, uninvented person. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, and Thank you for that. Similarly, I mean, if you're reading the, the story of, say, Jesus being taken up into heaven and you're not reading other stories of apotheosis where, say, Romulus is taken up into heaven, if you're reading the stories of Jesus going out and teaching and performing miracles and you're not reading Apollonius of Tiana, and, and the, the Philostratus account of, of, of him going around, traveling around, teaching and performing almost identical miracles. The problem with this is that this often gets, these parallels, these contextual parallels often get misused. And so the, the angry atheist types that I talked about before say, well, the Bible's just plagiarized from this stuff. That's not what's going on. But what is happening is that, that if, you, if you're looking in the context, this stuff was in the air, this stuff was around. And he, Jesus wasn't exceptional. Uh, the stories aren't exceptional. Once you understand that, then you get a better understanding of, of how these things came about and, and what they mean. This is it. I mean, Christmas is coming up. Maybe you can talk to this person about the virgin birth because he might say, oh, it's so unbelievable. It must be true. Right. Or <laughs> did you know what I mean? Like no yeah. one, no one could possibly make it up because they'd know you wouldn't believe them. So therefore it must be true. And yeah. this, uh, this kind of weird, uh, it's 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 absurd. Therefore, I believe it. Move. <laughs> I know. I, I I thought that kind of it's so ridiculous. It must be true. Kind of thinking true. was reserved but, for science. But this, <laughs> but this is it though. If you know that at the time, somebody like Hercules in myth, or somebody like Alexander the Great in propaganda, if you know that they had miraculous births too, spermless births then you know that we're talking about readerly expectation. We're not talking about something unique that came out of nowhere, and now you have to either accept it or deny the whole thing. Bart, Bart Ehrman has a, uh, has a lecture coming up that he's doing online, I think, uh, I think this month, on other virgin births in the ancient world, hmm. where he's making ex exactly this point. And it's not just sort of saying, that, as I said, it's not that Christianity copied this other stuff. It's just that Christianity was in a particular context where this stuff was being said. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to say, well, it's... It's unique, therefore, and it's weird, therefore, it must have happened. It's a stupid argument. Mm. Yeah, it is. Angie, do you have any thoughts before I go into the final questions? Oh, briefly. We have been chatting for about, uh, oh, what, just over an hour now? And we have used the word proper over and over and over. <laughs> and one of the things that I want to say to the listeners is that it is not the four of us here trying to define what proper means. That work has and is being done every day by people who actually spend a lot of time thinking about how to reach good conclusions. So what do I mean by good? Because now it just sounds like I'm using the word proper all over again, right? But I'm not. By good conclusions, I actually mean conclusions that are testable. Conclusions that are reproducible, conclusions that in the end help all of us make better decisions. It helps us predict the future. It helps us every day with whatever walk we're on. And so when we talk about proper reading, I dare say that at least among the four of us, we are not appealing to an internal special revelation. We're not asking you to simply take our word. For what proper is. In fact, I think if we came back 
the four of us. And we talked about a, a, a big word, epistemology. You'll have heard it here over and over and over. So some of you can press fast forward for the next 45 seconds. <laughs> but if we came back and we talked about what we meant by proper, how to reach good conclusions, we would talk about historical methodology with Tim. We would talk about what it means to understand the heart of an ancient language with Aaron. We would talk with Matthew about walks out of Christianity and what advised his thinking as he was reaching the exit. And so when we say proper reading today, friends, we are not talking about independent decisions that we four reached and we just happen to agree that atheism is in some sense the way we see Christianity now. Because atheism is just the answer to the question, is there a God, right? And I don't know how each of these guys would phrase their, their own atheism. But proper reading means that you cast away your fear. You get rid of not being able to read the counter opinion. And you actually do the hard yards mm -hmm. in understanding what it means to think and think well. We don't have time for that. But when we say proper, there is a foundation. And whatever you take away from what I've said today, if this is the only thing you take away, lay the foundation for your own reasoning and do that first. And then maybe you have a hope of properly reading the Bible or your history textbook or your chemistry textbook or having better conversations with your wife or your friends or whoever. Because understanding is something that takes time and effort, if you're going to do it properly. Amen. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, I can see I'm going to get motivated into reading the Bible again. And all the Christians cheered. Right, so gentlemen, thank you so much. This has really been fun. I've I'm genuinely pleased that I had you both on. I really, really loved this conversation. So um, maybe we can have a work out a way of replicating something similar next year. This is fabulous. So one of the things that we're in the habit of doing here on Sermon Believable is asking our guests, especially when we're talking about the Bible and things Christianity, we normally just reserve it for Christians. But since you guys are so enthusiastic about the Bible, Aaron, first, do you have a favorite Bible character and who are they? I don't, but I can tell you who's on my mind this week. It's the son of man in Revelation who has boobs. <laughs> he doesn't have stay face. He doesn't have a chest. He's got mastoy. And to me, this is, this for several reasons, this has been on my mind. This crazy, wild-looking figure, right? Everyone can agree that it's supposed to wow you and make you think that you're, you're small and supposed to push the boundaries of what's natural and so on. But what some people don't realize is that some of that pushing is that he apparently has mastoy and that it could mean several things. He could be competing with, with Roma from, from Rome. I don't know what, where you land on that, but it's been on my mind, especially in this time when I'm trying to figure out along with everybody else, what I think about trans identity and sexual identity and so on. It's been on my mind, this crazy heavenly vision of the son of man, guy, guy, with Mastor, girl. I am not familiar with that, so I'm definitely <laughs> going to be reading my Bible. Please, please look it up. Well, 
thank you, Aaron. You've probably just blown the minds of half the half our listeners. Thank you so much for that. That's fabulous. Tim, I dare you to beat that. Uh, that's going to be tough to beat, and I'm now going to go back and look at Revelation in the Greek because uh, I hadn't noticed the mass to it, but there you go. Look, my favourite character, because he, he, I think he's crazy and weird and he doesn't quite fit, is John the Baptist because especially John the Baptist in Matthew and Mark, so the early, the early Gospels, uh, he gets different in, in John. But because what's going on with the Gospels is they're trying to fit him in because they, they think he's important, but they, he doesn't quite fit. So they're trying to make him out to be sort of like, oh, he's the guy who announces Jesus. But if you read, say, Mark, for example, he doesn't. He doesn't say, hey, this guy over here is the Messiah. He says the Messiah is coming, and then Jesus turns up, gets baptised by him. They don't even talk, and then Jesus goes away, and that's it. And then in the rest of, of Mark, he keeps popping up, but he keeps popping up as a kind of a sceptical voice. He, he's in prison at one point, and he sends messengers to Jesus and says, who are you? Are you the Messiah? <laughs> if you're not the Messiah, when's he coming? So, he, one, he's meant to be this guy who knows everything, but at the same time, he obviously doesn't. And two, he's actually a bit sceptical about Jesus. Now, when you get to John's gospel, all that changes. And in John's gospel, he says, here, here he is. This is the guy I was talking about. And he doesn't even baptise him, right, mm-hmm. because that's actually a, a, something that a superior does to an inferior. So John's gospel kind of conveniently makes that bit go away. Matthew's gospel has him say, hey, I shouldn't be baptising you. You're the superior. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, this is how it's meant to be which doesn't actually make any sense. So I love John the Baptist because he doesn't fit. And also I love the bit where, where they say to Jesus, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And he says, well, some say you're Elijah, come back from heaven. Some say you're John the Baptist. And this is after John the Baptist has been executed. And there's another bit where Herod says, you know, he hears about Jesus and he says, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. So there's even an idea that John the Baptist must have been around, that John the Baptist had risen from the dead, or at least could have, and then in Acts, they meet some guys in Greece who are baptising people and they say, are you baptising them in the name of Jesus? They say, they say no, we're baptising, you're giving them the baptism of John. So John's sect continued after John's execution. So we've got a direct parallel between the Jesus sect and the John sect, except the John sect obviously died out, most likely. So I like John the Baptist because he doesn't fit and he's weird. He's saying things like, you know, the axe has been laid at the root of the tree and, you know, everything is going to be cleansed with fire. He's crazy. And he he doesn't fit the gentle Jesus, meek and mild story at all. He's an apocalyptic weirdo. So I love John the Baptist. He also eats some locusts. Yeah, I was going to say, clearly all that diet of locusts and honey must have... Locusts uh, well, and wearing that scratchy robe made out of a camel skin. I mean, if you've ever seen a camel skin, that, 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 that would not have been comfortable. Yeah. John the Baptist. Well, in, he's, a good, he's a good example because he points to what we've been talking about because all those things look like echoes of Old Testament stuff, but they yeah. also show that Christians are trying to struggle with something that apparently actually happened. Yeah. They, have to, they have to figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, you know, John the Baptist baptising Jesus didn't fit their idea of who Jesus was, so they have to keep changing the story right. to try and make it fit until they take the baptism out altogether. Right. So did John the Baptist ex- exist as a real person? Almost certainly. He's, he's tested in Josephus, and that, okay. that bit isn't a bit that, that uh, it seems to have been tampered with. Okay. Uh, and, and the whole reason he's in the Jesus story is because that he, he seems to have, as, as Aaron just said, he seems to have been significant to Jesus. 
but they can't make quite make him fit their conception of Jesus as being superior to him. So they're, they're having to fiddle around with the story, uh, they, even to the point where they make them relatives at one point. Now, Luke's gospel has them being, it's often said cousins. It doesn't actually say that in the gospel. But they try and they try and fiddle around with it that way and say, oh well, he he was he was Jesus's relative, which is almost certainly not true. Never gets mentioned again in that gospel or anywhere else. I'm going a bit off script here, and I'm also very conscious of the time. So just just very quickly, so would it be fair to say then that in terms of what these apocalyptic preachers were like, is it fair to suggest then that John the Baptist is more close to the type of person they were than Jesus is? No, I'd say they're both. Yeah, okay. I'd say they're both. If you look, particularly look at the early Gospels, they're saying the same thing. Um, Bart Ehrman's written some very good books on this. You know, maybe maybe I can come back on and talk about it, Matthew. But the same message: the end of the world is coming very, very soon. You've got to repent, cleanse yourself, otherwise you will be you among those who will be cast into nothingness. The same the same thing. Okay. You want to be very careful, of course, just because we're talking about reported speech. Right. It's the same issue for John as, as for Jesus. Yeah. Um, if he's the character of the apocalyptic preacher in your book, then he will say that kind of thing. But, yeah, it, it really does seem like he's a good example, doesn't it? Of, yeah. of the kind of teacher that, that Jesus would have been. Again, that would have been relatively normal. And if you haven't looked at a bunch of them, you don't know what you're looking at for real. Yeah, exactly. Lovely. Thank you so much, gentlemen. This has been fabulous. Clearly, we could go on for ages. We'll work something out for, for 2023 about one or both of you again or whatever. We'll, we'll certainly do something. This has been absolutely great fun for me. Listeners, thank you so much for coming here. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I did. If not, where is your soul? If you have any questions you'd like to ask any of these uh, fine gentlemen, we, it will be an excuse for us to get them back on again. Press at gmail.com, same place you can catch us all the time. Thank you. You have been listening to Still Unbelievable. And until next time, be reasonable. You have been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.